Thank you for joining us on the Florida Keys Weekly Show and Podcast. I want to thank our good friends out in the radio world as we air on WKWF AM 1600 and FM 103.3 on Saturday and Sunday mornings early at 7 a.m. and on 93.7 NRG 5 a.m. Sunday Florida Keys Weekly Show Podcast. I'm Brett Myers. Joining me today is a, a regular guest of mine who is the, I call him the Michael Clayton of the Florida Keys. He's rolling his eyes right Right now, Josh Mothner, who does a little bit of everything down here. He's a realtor here in the Keys. And most importantly, he's great to have on the show, not only because of his connections, but he's just a great broadcaster, radio guy, and a very intelligent dude. But one of the perks of having Josh Mothner on the show is he is a childhood friend of famed author John Feinstein. Josh called up uh, John the other day and said, hey, would you mind joining us on the show? John said yes. So it looks like John will Join Josh and I here just in a bit to talk about his newest book, Raise a, F- Raise a Fist, Take a Knee. It's not a book that's going to be uh, without controversy and without questions, without you know, sparking a lot of discussions. That's why the book is so good. And of course, Feinstein, who will be joining us, is a famed author. Uh, most people know him from Season on the Brink, but he's written over 44 books. He is one of the most accomplished sports journalists, if not the, in the country. He'll be joining us. But first and foremost, Josh, good to have you back on the show. And and how excited are you to have your old buddy, John Feinstein, join us today? I'm ex- super excited. Britt, thanks for having me on the show. And the lead-in is always like my favorite part uh, because you just say things about me that are patently untrue and they're very flattering. <laughs> so I, I love that. That's great. Uh, and I'll take credit for every single thing that I possibly can. John is a great guy. He's several years older than me. Uh, I'm actually very close with his brother, Uh, But I watched John, you know, from afar growing up and we worked at the same country clubs and golf courses and we've been friends for a long, long time. Let's just say that our parents were were good friends, especially our mothers. He's a great guy and he's a super confrontational just reporter. He's just, that's what you can call him. Well, for anyone who's not familiar, you probably just don't follow sports and that's okay, but he's, he's fascinating. You don't have to be a sports fan to enjoy this one. But for those that do, you know how well known across the globe, not just the country that John Feinstein is. He's one of the most recognized authors. The book coming out, Raise a Fist, Take a, Take a Knee, raises some great issues on race, inequality, and sports. John's going to cover most likely some of the things from the book about his relationship with John Thompson and and others that he interviewed, I think dozens and dozens of people he interviewed for this book, and I don't want to just go into it all right now, but should be a lot of fun today. Anything in particular, Josh, I think we got about 20 seconds before he joins us here. Anything in particular you really want to talk to John about today? Well, I think we're going to talk about uh, the fact that this is not just a new thing. Uh, race and sports has been a thing for a long time. We're also going to probably touch on the most recent activity that relates to race and sports, which is the uh, Brian Flores situation, for lack of a better term. And uh, we'll see what he what he has to say about that. And joining us on the Florida Keys podcast and show today with Josh and I is famed author John Feinstein. We've talked about this. John was born in New York. He's uh, been he had been with the Washington Post over the years. He still contributes with and has worked with ESPN, the Golf Channel, CBS Sports, Sporting News, Golf Digest. I can go on and on in case you live under a rock. Uh, but for those who who have lived under that rock, John's written 44 books, including Season on the Brink, which probably everyone of 
you listening has read, that was the 1985-86 basketball season he covered with Bob Knight. That was turned into a movie. It changed a lot for sports media and covering college sports. He's also the author of those 44 books of A Good Walk Spoiled uh, down here in Key West in the Florida Keys. Obviously, Navy's a big deal. We all know a Civil War, the Army-Navy book John's written, and of course, Raise a Fist, Take a Knee, that we'll be talking about today as well. Uh, that book is trending, and it's not just trending because John wrote it yesterday. He was writing about this stuff. He's been talking about this stuff well before the last couple months here in sports talk radio and, and ESPN and other platforms talking about coaching changes. Uh, as we introduce John, let me just give you a quick, for, for those listening, and I know you're going to pick this book up and read it, but let me just tell you a little bit real quick about Raise a Fist and Take a Knee. I'll read a tagline from the inside blurb of the opening book, and that is, 75 years after Jackie Robinson broke baseball's color line, race is still a central and defining factor in America's professional sports leagues. With an encyclopedic knowledge of professional sports and shrewd cultural criticism, John Feinstein uncovers not just why, but how pro sports continue to perpetuate racial inequality. John, I've got Josh Mothner here, who I know you know. We can't be more excited, more thrilled to have someone of your caliber and insight on the show today. Thank you for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure, guys. And uh, as, as you know, uh, Britt, uh, Josh and I literally go back to childhood uh, on the eastern end of Long Island. So we've known each other for about 100 years in my case. And uh, um, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. We're very excited. Now, Josh was talking before you joined us here today, John, about growing up around you. A lot of far-fetched golf stories that I don't think are, are very true once we get you on here. But uh, I know he looks up to you. He's always been very fond of you. So I want to thank Josh, who's right here, for getting you on here with us and talking to you. But any stories about Josh before we get started oh that we God. should know or that maybe <laughs> listeners should know? He's kind of the Michael Clayton, you went on to be one of the most famous authors in the world, and Josh is kind of the Michael Clayton of the Florida Keys, so y'all took some different paths, but early early goings, what should we know about Josh? Oh, God, you know, Don't say it, we've John, only got okay. 20, 25 minutes, right? Um, <laughs> Josh was actually closer friends with my brother, Bobby, because they're, they're the same age, and uh, uh, he, um, he was sort of famous for his ability to hit the golf ball long distances, but not always in the right direction. Uh, and, uh, uh, he and Bobby were, were good friends growing up and, and he has a younger brother, John, uh, who I think has been somewhat successful, right, Josh? As opposed to um, what, John? <laughs> I'm trying to be kind I here, you're Josh. Trying to be kind. I like that. And I appreciate and, it. And, uh, my, his mother and my mother, uh, played golf together all the time. They played very early in the morning, mostly because my mother was very sensitive about getting in anybody's way. They were not great players. Nope. Um, but, but they had a routine, uh, where, you know, they would play nine holes in the morning and usually get home, uh, <laughs> before anybody else in the house was up. And, uh, they actually played for the class D club championship one year. And, uh, as I recall, Josh, your mom won in 19 holes and, uh, if there was ever a match that did not need to go sudden death, I think it was that one. I think you're right, John. Let, let's take John off the spot here for a second. You know, as he said and mentioned, I was slightly younger than him, and my memories of John go back to actually John to the Upper West Side. You know, you were at, you guys were on right. River, Riverside and 79th, right? And uh, 77th, 77th, yeah. and we were at 85th and West End. And I'd I'd go see Bobby 
and uh, John would be there with the paper spread out, just whatever, you know, times or whatever, just on the stats, everything. And John, I got to thank you because my love of basketball came from you and to some extent, John Miller, who was our neighbor out on shelter, your neighbor out on Shelter Island. Right, uh, right. Absolutely just be- basketball guys, and they just <laughs> it infected the rest of us too. But just, Yeah, well, uh, I actually learned to read reading the New York Times, Josh, so that depiction is accurate. Yeah, that's fair. Just a yeah. little note of, 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 uh, of, well, whatever it is. I just, I'll point it out. Britt did play Division One college basketball, and uh, he was, I don't know how he ended up down in the Florida Keys after that, and he didn't go pro. <laughs> but I think he might have been the benefit, you know, since he is a white gentleman, that maybe he just got to play because he was white. Uh, <laughs> I'm not being modest. I was just good enough to play. I had a good time doing it. And um, Where did you play, Britt? I ended up at Georgia State for a season there. I went out to Montana, but at Georgia State, I was there when Lefty Drizel came in. That's when I left. So I have some fun stories, but I was never that great I, I had fun doing it and i and i still love thinking well, you about could write it. a book if you played for lefty for a year i Everybody didn't play could. for him like he came in my coach uh was fired at georgia state at the time kind of tells you where the program was at he came in uh they hired him and, and i played summer there was getting ready to, to kind of decide if we were going or staying and they made it clear they'd rather not have me there um uh, not right. because of my they would have probably said that if they knew me better but it wasn't just because of my personality it was my also a couple of us are playing abilities they were ready to kind of turn the program around but I had a good time being around right. him, hearing some fun stories, him, him lecturing us and coaching us about not being out late at night. Obviously, the limb bias stuff. First time I met Lefty, right. I'll bore you with stories one day. He was he was naked coming out of the shower. And Jesus. I'll never get that image out of my head. Um, and he came well, in you're time. already into TMI there, Britt. Yeah, that's and, right. Um, so, I, did speak, I actually spoke to Lefty yesterday. He's oh 90 man, now. Oh, and, man. He will not and, remember uh, me. He's struggling because his wife passed away very suddenly oh, a few man. months ago. So I, I'm try, I try to keep in touch with him as best I can. Uh, John, let me uh, get colloquial on us here. If we could start to break into, uh, since obviously you came out with the book, I saw several interviews on television with various in various different outlets. But we have a thing going on right down here. Started in Miami when Brian Flores got fired and then has now right. filed suit again. What are your thoughts on this whole thing? Obviously, you must be sitting there just a little smug, but uh, no, nah, not smug. That's the wrong word. But what, what are your thoughts on this? Is this case got some validity? Well, as, as I said, the day Brian Flores got fired, this, this was kind of a culmination, a summation, you pick a word, of racist take a knee because uh, I interviewed about 100 people uh, for the book, most, not all, but most black, um, all of whom had had various experiences that none of the three of us can relate to because we're not black. Um, and it, the, the history, if you look back, just looking at statistics, this is an opinion, this, this is statistical, uh, of black coaches is that, A, it's harder to get hired, as we're seeing again in this NFL hiring cycle, uh, and B, uh, it, it's harder to keep your job. The black coaches have shorter leashes. Uh, Lovey Smith uh, was fired in in Chicago after taking the Bears to a Super Bowl with the great Rex Grossman playing quarterback, and a couple of years later went ten and six and walked in to see his general manager, uh, thinking they were going to talk a contract extension, and walked out without a job. Uh, and you know we saw David Culley get fired after one year in Houston. Of course, Lovey Smith ended up getting hired in his place, and. Everybody in the NFL will tell you that only happened because of the Brian Flores lawsuit. 
that they were ready to hire Josh McCown uh, as as the coach. And basically, all the Roger Goodell and others called and said, we, "You've got to hire a black coach. We can't have nine out of the nine jobs uh, be taken by white guys." And of course, uh, Miami did hire a biracial coach uh, also after the Flores lawsuit. Which so is also a big when story, this yeah. happened. I, I wrote a column in the Post basically saying, look, this completely backs up the research I did for a raise of fist take. And not just in football, but, but across the board. I mean, Josh, you and I are New Yorkers. Willie Randolph uh, took over the Mets when they were terrible in 2005. They'd won 71 games a year before, won 97 the second year came up an inning short of going to the World Series and a season and a half later was fired. Managers get fired, but he had a winning record when he got fired, but he's never been hired again. White managers get recycled all the time. Jeff Torborg, who managed down there in Miami at one point, uh, had five different major league managing jobs, never won a division title, but he was a nice guy. So he kept getting rehired. Buck Showalter is a very good manager. I would never say he, I'm glad the Mets have hired him, but again, this is his fifth job. There's no way any black manager will ever get a fifth chance at a job, much less a fourth or a third in most, in virtually all cases. And John, for those listening, as you and Josh really dig into this, because this is fascinating, and I wish we had more than 25, 30 minutes here. We could talk all day about this. For those listening, just to preface this, we're talking about Raise a Fist, Take a Knee, a book you just you just wrote. It's out. And as I mentioned before, this was before. I mean, you, you've been one of the people in sports, one of the, one of the biggest voices in sports, who's been willing to talk about this well before all this came up and, and, you, and you've been you've been you don't need me to toot your horn but we feel like a lot of other broadcasters maybe journalists maybe it's the company they work for uh who knows but it's not talked about enough and you've been doing this and so this book comes out raise a fist take a knee this is again before you know Mike McDaniel was hired Flores was fired maybe even in, you look at tech the Texans um a, a guy comes in there for one year probably exceeds expectations wins four games no one expected him to he's got the Deshaun Watson controversy off the field still wins four games for a team that had no business and he's fired after a year, all this is happening. Uh, we've seen some other people, uh, you know, not to call anyone out, but maybe Adam Schefter. We see the collusion with the NFL, and when it comes to covering this type of stuff, you've been doing it. So as we talk about that today, I want listeners to understand: raise a fist, take a knee. So much in this book about this. This is one part of it. As you and Josh dig into it, but why was that book? Now you've been talking about this for a long time. I do want to ask this as we get started: why was it so important for you to write this book? And I want to be clear to those who are listening: you know, there's a forward in the book by Doug Williams, and it's very important for people to read that and understand we're three white guys talking about it today uh you know you're white but he, doug talks about this from his perspective saying this was so important that you cover it as a white person because maybe people always say oh if a black person says this they're continuing to say the same thing and i know he showed appreciation for your book so why why was this timely for you and why was it important for you well, you, you cover a lot of ground there, Britt, but uh, I, I've covered sports you know, since I was in college, and obviously I've been around a lot of racial issues, uh, and as, as Doug says in the forward, and as I would say, as a white person, I can't understand exactly what it's like to wake up black every morning. I can't understand what it's like to be stuffed for DWB, driving while black, which every person I interviewed, black person I interviewed for this book, 
has had at least one experience, if not multiple experiences with. I, uh, Doc Rivers told me about getting stopped regularly driving through South Central LA to the Los Angeles Sports Arena because he's driving a nice car through a, a tough neighborhood and he's black. And so cops would pull him over. And the first question was, where'd you get this car? Wow. And that's something that, that I've never had to deal with when I've gotten pulled over. It's been because I deserve to get pulled over. <laughs> and uh, I think the, the first thing, as I said in my introduction, that, that sort of made me think, gosh, I, I really want to look more into this subject was an incident that happened here in Washington in 2010 when Donovan McNabb was playing quarterback for, for the team formerly known as the Redskins. I guess now we can call them the commanders. Um, and Mike Shanahan was the coach. And uh, McNabb got yanked from a game in Detroit with two minutes left. He played, taken every snap for eight games, and they brought in the aforementioned Rex Grossman. And on the first play, Rex Grossman was was sacked by Ndamukong Sue. He fumbled. Sue picked up the ball, ran into the end zone, game over. Uh, and after the game, naturally, Shanahan was asked, well, why did you change quarterbacks? And he said, well, I didn't know if Donovan knew our two-minute offense. Well, this guy's been in the league 11 years the eighth game of the season. How can he possibly not know the two-minute offense? Well, he was asked about it the next day, and he changed his answer and said, well, I didn't know if Donovan was in shape to run the two-minute offense. Again, NFL quarterback eight games into the season, he's not in shape to call consecutive plays. So that weekend, there was a lot of you know hoo-ha about it here in Washington, and the team was off that weekend. And all of a sudden, this anonymous report comes out of ESPN and the ESPN is famous for anonymous reports as we know <laughs> saying that the Shanahan's had to cut their uh, playbook in half for Donovan that he couldn't learn the whole playbook well now they've called him lazy they've called him out of shape and now they've called him dumb and this goes back to the racial coding of the 60s and 70s when you know blacks were supposed to play the speed positions wide receiver running back defensive back because they weren't really weren't quite smart enough to play quarterback and that's why Marlon Briscoe played 11 games for the Denver Broncos in 1968 was runner up for rookie of the year in the AFL that year and never played quarterback again they moved him to wide receiver James Harris didn't get drafted till the 8th round even though he was clearly a first-round talent because he said he was going to be a quarterback, and he was a successful one in Los Angeles. So long story shorter, uh, when I, I went on a TV show that week and I attacked the Shanahans. Kyle was the offensive coordinator. And I said, this is racial coding. This goes back to the 60s and 70s. And what was fascinating about it, Britt, was that I got attacked for saying this. You know, Rick Riley, who you guys probably know, wrote a who knew Shanahan well because he lived in Denver when Shanahan was coaching there, mm-hmm. and wrote a column attacking me and said, among other things, that Shanahan had cried when one of his black players died in a car accident. And my response was, well, he probably cried when his dog died, too. Right. Ooh. And, Ooh. you know, and so anyway, uh, that put it in my brain. And then when, when Kaepernick happened and Kaepernick was clearly blackballed in 2017 and the NFL media, as you point out, Britt, uh, was writing all these stories, quoting anonymous sources saying, well, Kaepernick wasn't blackballed. Uh, he's just not a good player anymore. At 29, he forgot how to play football, apparently. And then three years later, Roger Goodell finally admitted that, yes, he was blackballed. Um, and then came the anthem protest. And that's when I knew I wanted to try to write this book. Uh, because I saw mostly black players kneeling and mostly white fans booing. 
And I, I thought, boy, are we polarized racially? And of course, Donald Trump was ranting about the fire, the SOBs and things like that. And uh, so I went to see John Thompson, who I'd known for almost 40 years and who I battled with frequently when he was coaching at Georgetown. But he'd become a friend and kind of a mentor to me because he, so, he was so damn smart. And I said, I want to write a book on race, but I don't know where to start. And John pointed a finger at me and he said, you might as well try to explain the Holy Trinity. Yeah. And then he said, which is why you need to write the book. And the point that Doug made, that John made, that my friends Mike Wilbon and Kevin Blackstone made was if a black person writes this book, even though the book is based on reporting, not opinion, then most people will just say, ah, it's just another black guy whining. And there are people who, who, who will say this is just another liberal whining. And that's fine. But it's not me whining. It's me reporting, which is what I've always done. I, I've always my books are based on reporting. I've never been a college basketball coach, but I was certainly able to write about college basketball coaches. God knows I've never played on the PGA Tour, but I could certainly write about guys who, who did play, who do play on the PGA Tour. And I'm not black, but I can talk to guys who are black about their experience. So that's what I set out to do. Well, it looks like you had a lot of success with it. Uh, in terms of, I mean, the, the massive amount of information here is a little bit overwhelming when you read the book. I mean, it's really rapid fire. Um, I wanted to go back to uh, your relationship with John Thompson and the fact that you talk about several anecdotes in the book about, you know, the battles that you had back and forth. Right. I am admittedly a guy who at the time of John Thompson's, you know, the Patrick Ewing era at, at Georgetown, I, I thought John Thompson was just a, a guy that just was angry. I had the typical, mm -hmm. you know, stereotypical view of it because of the things I'd read. Just talk to me right. about the, I know it's there in the book. I read it in the book, but tell the listeners a little bit about the evolution of your relationship with him. Well, you're right about people not understanding Thompson. Uh, I mean, he was once described by a columnist as the Idi Amin <laughs> of college basketball. Idi Amin was a murderer. Right. Um, and, and John liked to describe himself as a large, angry black man. Um, with a smile on his face. And he and I battled because I was covering the team for the Washington Post. They were obviously very good. They went to three Final Fours in four years with Ewing. And John was obsessive about secrecy. Uh, and I, I once, I did a piece early on uh, in my time at the Post on two of his star players pre Ewing, Craig Shelton and John Duran, who were both very good players. They were the, the heart and soul of his first great team that went to the Elite Eight in 1980. And I routinely asked them the same question that I asked every college basketball player, football player that I ever interviewed. Uh, what's your major? And they were seniors. And uh, what do you want to do when you're done playing basketball? Routine questions. They answered them routine, routinely. And I got a call late that night from John screaming at me. How dare you ask those two kids what they're majoring in? And how dare you, you know, ask them what they're going to do when they stop playing basketball. Would you ever do that to a white player? And I said, John, call Michael Corrin. I did a story on him two weeks ago and I asked him the same two questions. I ask it all the time. And so that we, we battled over things like that. Uh, he did. And he, he said to me at one point, you should be asking him about playing basketball. And you don't understand what they've been through to get to be seniors at Georgetown. I said, I know. That's why I want to write about them. That's more interesting than their points per game and rebounds per game. So we, we, we battled. Uh, one, there was one night where I wanted to talk to him after a game. And his 
alter ego, Mary Fenlon, who was the academic coordinator at Georgetown, who was his closest friend. Um, when I asked John if I could have a few minutes after his press conference was over, she said, he doesn't have time to talk to you. And I turned to Mary. I said, geez, Mary, I, I, I thought I was talking to John. And John reared up. John was six foot ten and about 300 pounds or more. And he, he said, if you talking to me, you talking to Mary. If you talking to Mary, you talking to me. If you blanking with Mary, you blanking with me. You want to blank with me? And then he used his favorite word, the first half of which is mother. And I said, uh, I said, yeah, John, come on, let's go outside. We'll resolve this outside. And, and he started laughing, thank God. <laughs> and he put his arm around me and he said, you know something, mother blank. I don't like you. I don't like you at all, but I respect you because you're crazy. <laughs> and so that we, we had that sort of relationship. And then not surprisingly, after he stopped coaching and after we were in that natural adversarial position, uh, we became friend, friendly at least. I was on his radio show here in Washington regularly, and we would joke back and forth. Uh, there was one time he was asking me a bunch of golf questions because John didn't know anything about golf, and I answered him because they were broadcasting live from the local golf tournament here. And he looked at me, and he, we're on air, and he said, you know, John, you're so damn smart. Why are you such a jackass? <laughs> and I said, you know, John, I've thought that about you for years. You and we both cracked up. And probably the audience was sitting there because John's an icon here in Washington. Right. Uh, was sitting there going, oh, my God, how could somebody talk to Coach Thompson that way? But he was fine with it. And so that's why, for me, it made sense because he and I had many talks about the issue of race through the years off the air. Um, it made sense to go and see him when I thought I wanted to write a book about race. And interestingly, he had no clue either. And it was Lamar Jackson who gave me my way into the book because everybody said when he came out of Louisville, he should change positions, be a wide receiver, you know, the old stereotypes yeah. and including Bill Polian, who was working for ESPN at the time, who was a hall of fame general manager and four white quarterbacks got drafted in the top 10 that year. Uh, and Lamar would not have gone in the first round if Ozzie Newsom, the first black general manager in the NFL, hadn't taken him with a 32nd pick. And we all know how that's turned out. Yeah. And so I want to remind listeners, we're on, we're on the Florida Keys Weekly Show. John Feinstein, famed author, talking about your most recent book, Raise a Fist, Take a Knee. The quarterback, the, the black quarterback, you talk about that a lot in your book. And so and, and I'm not here to condemn, you know, this is a rabbit hole sometimes as white guys like Josh and I, we talk about race and sports. But as you said, you, you interviewed, you're reporting on it. I'm not here to condemn all white people uh, or myself, but and neither I, am I, by the way. Yeah. But I think it's pretty. I think I'm just I, I, with the book. Does, I think it's point out to people who might not know or understand the difficulties of being black, which is true in our society across the board. And I'm just looking at it through the microcosm of sports. Absolutely. And I think, and I think it really is an exercise in true uh, empathy um, to really try and see it through that lens. And you do a great job. The black quarterback issue that you cover in the book, I think is fascinating and where I was going with making sure that just know that I'm not condemning, but I think it is a very common thing. I think most people could agree over the years as people talk about quarterbacks, we don't just talk about quarterbacks. We talk about white quarterbacks and we talk about black quarterbacks. And a lot of times yep. the stereotype is, oh, that's a running quarterback. Or let me compare this quarterback to another quarterback. And how often do we see 
we always compete. When I say we in the sports world, you hear a lot of comparisons between one black quarterback and another black quarterback. And, and that's unfortunate, but I think you cover a lot of that in the book. And I want to talk to you and Josh a little bit about the black quarterback parts of this book. I think it's a fascinating topic because there's so many great things in this book that you're talking about, but that one really stuck out to me. Well, Ozzie Newsom uh, made a point to me, again, the first black NFL general manager who was a Hall of Fame wide receiver. And he said in 1970, when he was 14 years old, he went to a tryout um, for a, uh, uh, you know, a, a peewee football team, not peewee, but, you know, 14-year-old football team. And when he got there, uh, the, the coaches said, okay, quarterbacks go there, running backs there, wide receivers there, and we'll take a look at all of you. And he said he instinctively started walking toward the quarterback group because in, in the schoolyard he always played quarterback because he was the best player. And as he walked over, he noticed that every other kid there was white. And he thought to himself, they're not going to let me play quarterback. The only uh, black person who had played quarterback in professional sports at that point was Marlon Briscoe. Mm -hmm. Um, James Harris had uh, been drafted by the Bills in the eighth round and made the team and played in a couple games. But that was it. And he said, they're not going to let me play quarterback. And he went over with the wide receivers. And, of course, became a Hall of Fame wide receiver. And, he, and what he said to me was, it's 50 years later. And, obviously, we've made a lot of progress. I mean, you look at Patrick Mahomes. You look at Kyler Murray. You, you look at Dak Prescott. You look at Lamar Jackson. Um, all stars in the NFL now. Uh, Russell Wilson's been a star for a while. And he said, so we've definitely made progress. In 1970, those guys probably would have ended up as, as receivers or running backs or defensive backs. Yeah. Um, but, but he said, it's still, there's still a double standard. And you, you look at what happened to Lamar coming out of college. You look at the backup quarterback position in the NFL. That's basically a white position. I don't know the exact numbers, but I, I guarantee you, twenty-five, at least twenty-five of the backup quarterbacks in the NFL. It's not Colin are white. Kaepernick. We know that. Yeah, yeah Colin Kaepernick uh, was not capable of being a, a backup quarterback as, in, in twenty seventeen. Guy who led a team to a Super Bowl. Um, but and I think that's Ozzy's point is well taken. That yeah, sure, we've made great progress, and look at the star black quarterbacks there are in the league now. Um, and with Tom Brady and, and Ben Roethlisberger retiring. Um, uh, they're kind of the, along with Joe Burrow, they're kind of the next generation, they're the next generation of stars. And Mahomes has already won a Super Bowl and an MVP. Lamar's already won an MVP. Um, and, and so that's progress, but is it enough? No, is the answer. Right. That we still have a long way to go. And anybody, and, and I, I get this a lot from people, anybody says, oh no, it's fixed. Well, look at Roger Goodell's press conference on Wednesday. Half the press conference was about uh, the race and the lack of progress that the NFL has made. The other half was about Dan Snyder's, you know, completely awful Washington team and, and what's going on there. But but the the, the it was a, it was a local reporter in Los Angeles, of all people, a TV guy who stood up and said, "Roger, you've been commissioner for 15 years. You're acting like this problem just came up last week." And he was. He was like, oh, we're going to look into everything. We're going to do everything we can. Well, what have you been doing for 15 years? Yeah. And I asked both Mike Tomlin and Tony Dungy. Roger Goodell was the only commissioner of a major sport who wouldn't talk to me for the book. And, and I've always gotten along fine with him. I've never had an issue with him. I've had issues with lots of people. But I never had an issue with Goodell. 
And yet his, his PR guy, Brian McCarthy, said, oh, Roger doesn't have time to talk to you. Well, of course he had time to talk to me, but he didn't want to talk to me. And I asked both Mike Tomlin, who is as smart a guy as I've ever met, and Tony Dungy, who's as smart a guy as I've ever met, why would, do you think Goodell wouldn't talk to me? And they both said the same thing. He's embarrassed. He can't tell his owners, 30 of whom are white, he can't tell his owners who to hire. And he's not going to put his $44 million a year job at risk to say to you, yeah, John, I can't get these, these old white guys to, 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 to be more diverse. So he, he ducked me completely. And he basically ducked the question Wednesday, too. He just said, oh, we have to do better. We have to do better. Well, that's like saying today, you know, the sun's going to come up in the east tomorrow. Right. Hey, John, a relatively recent thing <laughs> yesterday. Uh, guy who lied about his vaccinations gets selected as the MVP for the NFL. Yep. Talk about double standards. Yeah. yeah. Would that happen? Think, I mean, we talk about the, the I guess the uh, proverbial, would a black guy get that benefit of the doubt? What do you thought? That's about? a great question, Josh. And, uh, and, and I don't know the answer. Uh, and I do think the MVP should be selected based on your performance on the field. The question is, should he have been on the field? Once he got caught lying. Now, there's no way the NFL is taking Aaron Rodgers off the field because the TV networks would, would go ballistic. And the TV networks basically are the corporate owners of the NFL because they pay so much money for TV rights. But again, your, your point is, is well taken. If Patrick Mahomes, um, you know, was the clear cut MVP, but had refused to get vaccinated and lied about it, right. would the mostly white NFL media vote for him for MVP. My guess is no, but I sure can't prove it. Right. Because Patrick Mahomes is smart enough to be vaccinated. John, we got so much we could cover. I know we're coming up on time here soon. I do want to switch gears real quick. This is topical as well, just like Aaron Rodgers is. You're a Duke guy. This is Coach K's last season. Um, mm-hmm. Tell is there is there a better coach? Not just maybe in college basketball. I know you covered Bobby Knight. There's obviously the Dean Smith era, things like that. But is there a greater coach than Coach K? Your thoughts on him and Duke, and maybe even in, in sports in general. Well, uh, let me point out my bias. First of all, it's not Duke because I, even though I did graduate from Duke, I'm not a huge fan of the school. Um, there's a lot that's gone on there over the years. No sense going into it that I have not approved of, but I've known Mike Krzyzewski since he was the coach at army. In fact, I saw him play when he was at army. I'm so old. Um, but I, I am a huge fan of Mike Krzyzewski and I, I get very angry when people who've never met him, criticize him. Well, he uses the F word all the time. Well, I, I've never met a coach other than Dean Smith who didn't curse. And most of Dean Smith's players, would, former players would tell you that they, they wished he had cursed rather than use the sarcasm that he used to make points in practice. But, uh, you know, Saturday at Carolina, I thought it was embarrassing. Um, the students chanting F coach K and, uh, and the point I made was if Dean had been there, he would have been humiliated. He would have hated it. I've seen Dean Smith go to the PA, you know, to stop, you know, the BS chant at referees and stuff like that. I've seen him take the mic and say, stop it. That's who Dean was. And I think Roy Williams is the same way. I I, I suspect Hubert Davis is too. He was in the tunnel when this happened. So it was out of his control. But I've always said to me, the Mount Rushmore of college 
basketball coaches is John Wooden, Mike Krzyzewski, Bob Knight, Dean Smith. Probably in that order. I don't think you can go past the 10 championships that Wooden won. That's such an extraordinary number. But Mike is right up there uh, in every way. And people ask me about him, and I will tell you, from knowing him well for 45 years, uh, he's a better person than he is a, a coach. And I'll tell you a, a story that, to me, defines who Mike Krzyzewski is. Um, February 5th was the uh, anniversary of my father's death, and Josh knew my dad growing up on Shelter Island. And um, uh, he died on a Sunday. He died on Super Bowl Sunday in 2006. And we had the funeral two days later. And I got home after everything was over. I was exhausted and then, you know, it was a tough, tough day, tough time. And I sat down in the chair I'm sitting in right now. And Duke was playing at Carolina. Of course, it was a nine o'clock game. I turned on the game and promptly fell asleep because I was so exhausted. That's how tired I was. And I woke up with a couple minutes left in the game and Duke ended up winning close game, typical Duke Carolina, uh, other than Saturday. And uh, now I was wired. I was awake. I knew I wasn't going to sleep. So I sat down to answer some emails, get some work done. And 45 minutes later, the phone rang and it was Krzyzewski. And he said, uh, I figured you'd still be up. And I said, yeah, I am. Nice win. Congrats. And he said, I just want you to know that during that last timeout with 30 seconds left, whatever, uh, when I walked into the huddle, I looked up at the sky and I said, Martin, this one's for you. Oh, man. I didn't even know how he knew my dad's name. Wow. But he did. And he made a point of calling me oh, 45 man. minutes after a big win. He just finished with the media to let me know that he was thinking about me. I've got goosebumps. And, yeah. and that's who Mike Krzyzewski is. Man. Uh, John, that, that, that's just amazing. John Feinstein here on our show, where I know we're getting ready, John. I promised you a time slot, because I can talk, Josh and I can talk to you all day, and Josh, when he shares stories about you guys growing up, they're always fond and amazing. One thing that's really known about you, I want to ask you this, is you're not scared to speak your mind. Um, you're not scared whether or not someone likes you or not, because you're going to cover it. You're going to, you're going to say what you want to say. It's something you don't see in journalism, uh, broadcasting as much anymore, particularly in sports media. I think, are there other broadcasters, when you've made it to the pinnacle you've made it to and is respected and deservingly so as you are, are there others that you look at that get it right as well? I look at you as a guy that kind of gets it right and says it. Um, you mentioned like Rick Riley giving you a hard time before. I think there's some Musburger issues there and stuff, but like guys like- Yeah, in Jim, the book specifically, right? Yeah. yeah. Maybe guys like Jim White, yeah. so I don't know, people I like to read. Is there anyone that you like to read, you feel like kind of covers things and can say it the way they want? to say it the way you do? Well, my, my, my old friend and mentor, Dave Kindred, uh, who's semi-retired now, uh, who worked with, I worked with at the Washington Post and went on to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and the Sporting News and has written for Golf Digest forever, is somebody I've always looked up to and who I, again, uh, consult with when I, when I feel I need advice or guidance uh, to this day. I think Bob Costas is a guy who has always been willing to express his opinions, uh, and sometimes people haven't liked them. But uh, Bob is in a position where he can say what he wants to say, and because he's Bob Costas, and uh, who's going to give you know people will give him a hard time, but he's fine with that. He doesn't care. In fact, I, one of the coolest nights of my life was that he and I were inducted into the National Sports Writers and Sportscasters Hall of Fame on the same night. 
and to go in with Bob Costas was was a hell of an honor, to, to be honest. Um, and there are we have good columnists at the Washington Post. My friend Sally Jenkins, uh, daughter of the great J- Dan Jenkins, is is always willing to speak up uh, on issues. Uh, Tom Boswell was a great writer on baseball. He just retired for, uh, last year. Uh, so th- those are guys who who come to mind right away as people who I always feel I should read. Or in Bob's case, listen to uh, John. I just want to touch something real fast uh, as we go back way, way early. I believe I remember this from when you were starting with the Washington Post, um, and it sort of gives a, a baseline for where you went in sports because you did the same thing. Did you cover a police corruption story in Baltimore I did. Like, when you were like right out of the block? Yeah, I, I was uh, I was working on the Metro staff. Uh, I was covering Prince George's County police and courts. Prince George's County is a suburb of Washington. And I, I literally stumbled, Josh, across a story about a group of police officers there who had been known in the late 1960s as the death squad. And what they did, what we found out they did when we did the the reporting was, let's say you you got arrested for burglary and you were black. And they would say to you, "Okay, Josh, do you want to go to jail on this burglary charge or do you want, you know, to get probation? And you'd say, of course, I want to get probation. Okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to get John and Britt. And on Friday night, you're going to rob the high store on Main Street. And uh, you stay in the car, make sure you're the getaway driver and you tell them that your brother's working uh, the counter. So it'll be an easy knockover. And when the guy, Britt and I would walk in, uh, we'd be shot and killed by a group of police officers who were who were hiding out in the store. And the police report would say that police acting on an anonymous tip had staked out the store. And they did this four or five times. Uh, and killed uh, a number of black teenagers. And uh, and that's how they got known as the death squad. And uh, because Bob Woodward was my editor, uh, I was able to pursue the story. And we eventually um, got, we got one of the guys who was on the death squad to go on the record, a guy named John Sakala, I'll never forget it. Um, and we found several of the, the getaway drivers uh, who also were willing to go on the record. There was one getaway driver who wasn't willing to go on the record and had his dog chase me off his property, which was a little bit scary. Wow. Um, but uh, we did eventually get the story. Of course, it was denied, denied, denied. And the Maryland attorney general, uh, Steve Sachs at the time, who just recently passed away, uh, did an investigation and found that everything we had written was true. Um, and that's the closest I ever came to a Pulitzer Prize. Josh, I did get nominated. Didn't win. Um, but, uh, yes, that was a long time ago, 1979. Yeah, it was my senior so. year, John. I remember like it was yesterday. I actually tell people that about you more than I tell the other stories about season on the brink, just so you know. Well, you well that was probably the best reporting job I ever did uh, that's, that's, uh, because that's it was lot. really hard. I mean, you're talking about getting people to admit that murder took place. Yeah. And unfortunately in Maryland, there was a statute of limitations even on murder, but the families of the victims did take the county and the state to court and, and won huge judgments against them. So 
I, I at least felt good about that. There you go. Well, John Feinstein here with us on the Florida Keys Weekly Show. John, raise a fist, take a knee is out there now. People can buy that anywhere you can buy books at, obviously. And you talk about the closest you got to big awards and Pulitzers. I think this one's going to be huge. It doesn't matter if you're on the right or the left, however people want to polarize today's world. This book is eye-opening, and it's great journalism. It's great reporting. So thank you for joining us today to talk about it. John, last question for our listeners down here. Who's going to win the Super Bowl this week? <laughs> Britt, if I knew the answer to that, I'd, I'd have bet a couple million dollars and I'd retire to the Keys. Um, but uh, I, I have this gut feeling that the, the Bengals are going to win. Um, and, and uh, you know, I know the experts say that their offensive line isn't good enough. I understand that. But Joe Burrow got sacked nine times in the conference championship game and they still won. Um, so, but you know, my last correct prediction was Nixon over McGovern. So I, I wouldn't take that to the bank anywhere. <laughs> well, we'd love to have you down here in the keys. You're doing a small timers, a big favor being you and coming on this show. Thanks for doing it. love to have you down here at some point with Josh. You can, uh, you can beat him up in golf once again and maybe get you back on here one day. Thank you for doing this. My golf game is such that, uh, even Josh could probably kick my butt at this point. Wow. That's quite a thing since I don't, <laughs> I'll tell you, I, I'll tell you guys one quick story that involves golf and my my brother um several years ago you'll understand this josh because my brother only plays on days that end in y right and he said to me john you got to stop start playing more you know because once i had kids and stuff I, I you know i was never that good to begin with and i wasn't playing much and, and he and i both are fortunate enough to be members here at congressional and he said why don't we meet tuesdays four o'clock we'll play nine holes and then we'll have dinner together and I said, yeah, that sounds good. Uh, you know, I, I can do that. So we met the first Tuesday in September. It was a beautiful day. I mean, perfect day, 70 degrees, no humidity. Played nine holes. It was a lot of fun. And when we finished, Bobby, Josh will understand this, said, it's so beautiful. Let's, let's play another few holes. And I said, you're right. It's beautiful. Let's have our first drink outside. <laughs> and he said, no, no, no. Come on. Let's go play a few more holes. And I said, no, I want to go drink. And so Bobby went and played a few more holes and I went and drank and I realized that the thing I really liked about golf was drinking. There you go. So I had an epiphany and Bobby probably had an epiphany too, realizing that all he really wanted to do was play golf. Yeah. And still does. Well, John, and still does. You're, you're, I met him for breakfast the other day, Josh. Um, it was about 12 degrees out and he was on his way to take an indoor lesson. Of course he was. Oh, of course my goodness. Was. Well, John, um, can we get you down here to the Keys? I think people listening would love to have you down here. I'd love to come down. And you know, uh, Josh may know this. My parents uh, honeymooned in the Keys. I did not know that. All right. Where? Yeah. Key West? Uh, Key West, yes. No kidding. Good. Yeah. 70 years ago. How about that? Wow. Things were probably a little How different here that? in Key West. That's where we're broadcasting from today. Florida Keys Weekly Show. John, we could talk to you all day. You've been so kind Thanks, John. Uh, to do this. Thank you so much, John Feinstein. Pick up the book again. Raise a fist. Take a knee. You will not regret reading this book. John, thank you again. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on the Florida Keys Weekly Podcast. We air on WKWF AM 1600 and FM 103.3 on Saturday and Sunday mornings at 7 a.m. You can also catch us at 93.7 NRG, 5 a.m. Sundays, and of course, podcast form, www.keysweekly.com. You can also find us on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and other podcast outlets. Thank you again for listening.